Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. It was the 18th of March, 1978, and I was walking towards Shannon Street in Limerick. It was a dark, dreary night, with a sharp wind creating squalls from the River Shannon. I was about to emcee a music event at the Stella Ballroom, a barn-like but revered dancing mecca with a capacity of about 1,000, which has seen the likes of the Royal Show Band, the Miami Show Band, Elton John and Tin Lizzy perform in their heyday. It's now a bingo hall. That night's event was Pop Group 78, a nationwide competition held as part of Limerick Civic Week. As the wet posters peeling off the front door proclaimed, we were there to find the most talented and entertaining pop group in Ireland. As I arrived, I spotted something unusual, a beautiful Jaguar parked outside. We didn't see many of those in Limerick. It added a certain glamour to the proceedings. The whole purpose of Limerick Civic Week was to get as many musicians as possible to come to the city. This gave every band in the country both professional outfits and those that had never played outside their own garage an opportunity to strut their stuff. There was also a quite enticing prize. As well as a trophy and top prize of £500, what these bands were really vying for was studio time to record demos with CBS Records. I was excited for my own sake. Billy Wall, Gayburn's legendary radio producer and soon-to-be head of RTE Radio 2, Ireland's first pop music station, was one of the judges. I was a budding disc jockey and I knew this is one guy I needed to impress. Eight bands had got through the heats over the previous day and a half, involving 163 musicians in 36 bands from all over the country. Now, the grand final was due to start at 8.30pm. I was surprised how small the crowd was. It seemed to be mainly family and friends of the bands, and some local musicians. I spotted Don O'Connor from the local band Reform, who had a hit song that month in the Irish Eurovision qualifiers. Before going on stage to introduce the contestants to the audience, I did the rounds to meet the groups, checking I had their details right. I met Village from Limerick, the well-known East Coast Angels from Dublin, and then a punk new wave outfit called The Hype, also from Dublin. A four-piece, just a bunch of kids slightly more punky than new wave. Usually I'd ask, who is your spokesman? This time, it was pretty obvious who was going to do the talking. I'm the man, said the singer listed on the entry form as Paul Hewson. He immediately said the band were changing their name that night from The Hype to U2. I wasn't impressed. Not a great name, U2, if you don't mind me saying. It's not commercial, I told Bono. He said brashly, man, we're not commercial. As I remember it, Larry, The Edge and Adam were quite nervous and had little to say. They seemed to just want to get it all over with. There was no proper sound check. I noticed Bono taking off his jacket as he took to the stage. That stood out. Everyone else was layering up because the hall was freezing. They got into their first number, which I felt they weren't happy with. I thought they were very loud, very new wave, and the acoustics in the Stella didn't help. But somehow they coped. As they went through their set, I could hear traces of the Ramones and the Birds, and Bono had the antics and the movements of Mick Jagger. As I watched and listened, I was impressed by U2's energy. These guys are certainly not great musicians or singers, I thought. 
but a few things made them stand out. They were by far the youngest band in the contest. They had a presence. Bono stood with feet wide apart, staring at and engaging the audience, and I was impressed by their confidence in playing their own material. Nearly all the other bands performed covers. At the end of the night, you two, to my slight surprise, were announced the winners. Being out of towners, this brought a mixed reaction from the crowd in the hall. You two celebrations were muted. They were underage for the festival club. The following day, the Bird family gave them free passes for the funfair before they got the train back to Dublin. In the band's book, You Two by You Two, Adam Clayton confirms that winning in Limerick was the exact point of becoming you two, of it just being the four of us. This was the first time they had performed as a four-man group having parted ways with the Edge's older brother, Dick. It was a remarkable first performance for the new band. Years later, Larry Mullen said, we had no idea how winning in Limerick would change our lives. And the Jaguar. The word was, it belonged to Adam Clayton's dad, who that weekend was working as a pilot at Shannon Airport. For many Limerick people, the big event of 1978 was Munster beating the All Blacks at Thoman Park. But for me, it was the privilege of being a witness at the Stella Ballroom on the evening you two were born. Cottage in Cork must be one of the city's prettiest buildings. Its villa style from 1830 described as Strawberry Hill Gothic. This was the home of George Boole, first professor of mathematics in Queen's College, now UCC, and the father of computer science, whose algebraic logic anticipated our digital age. But it was Ethel, the youngest of his five daughters, born in this house, who became even more famous as the author of The Gadfly, a phenomenally successful novel first published in 1897 in New York and London. Acclaimed as one of the world's great novels, it sold over five million copies in translation in Russia alone, its author compared to Dickens and Mark Twain. It later went on to sell more than two million copies in China and inspired theatrical, film and musical adaptations, one of which featured a celebrated score called The Gadfly Suite by Shostakovich. Bernard Shaw adapted the novel into a play in 1898. Set in Italy in the political ferment of the 1830s and 1840s, it is a tale of love, betrayal, religious devotion and revolutionary zeal a heady cocktail of drama, deceit and denouement. Its appeal to revolutionaries saw widely read in the USSR, in the British Labour movement into the 1920s, and by Irish Republicans, including Pather O'Donnell. Liam Mellows read the novel before his execution in 1922. The book was banned in Ireland in 1943. It tells the story of Arthur Burton, a young Englishman who moves to a Catholic seminary after the death of his mother. 
His guardian and mentor, Montanelli, to whom he is devoted, is, unbeknownst to him, his father. With his childhood sweetheart, Gemma, Burton becomes involved in the Young Italy movement, but having unwittingly betrayed his comrades and then discovered the family secret, he loses faith in the church and moves to South America, suffering years of torture and degradation. When he returns to Italy in the guise of the gadfly, a fearless, swashbuckling revolutionary, Burton is visited by Montanelli, who is now a cardinal. During their encounter, he demands that Montanelli leave the church. Montanelli refuses and condemns his son to death. I won't reveal the ending, but it is the character of the gadfly that powers the melodrama set against the political and revolutionary turmoil of the time. In Russia, this fictional figure even inspired Soviet cosmonauts Yuri Gagarin and Valentina Tereshkova, the first man and first woman in space. Ethel Voynich's own life was hardly less dramatic. Her mother Mary Everest, niece of Sir George Everest, who gave his name to the world's highest mountain, was a mathematician and teacher. After her father, George Boole's untimely death, and the family's straitened circumstances, Ethel was reared in London. But a summer spent in Ireland when she was 15 with her great-uncle, John Ryle, a Greek scholar, sowed the seeds of a commitment to revolutionary causes after reading the Italian revolutionary writer and politician Giuseppe Mazzini. From then until her marriage, she dressed entirely in black. Having studied music in Berlin thanks to a small inheritance, she learnt Russian from an exiled revolutionary in London called Stepniak and travelled to Russia giving music lessons in St. Petersburg. There she got involved with families of political prisoners and witnessed suffering and injustice up close. She even, at one point, as a governess, met the Tsar of Russia. She said that they took an instant dislike to each other. Back in London, she met and married a Polish political exile who'd escaped from prison in Siberia called Wilfred Voynich, and the couple became involved in political work. Ethel started to translate into English classical and modern Russian writers, as well as Ukrainian and Russian folk songs, and at one point made a dangerous journey to Ukraine to organise smuggling of contraband publications into Russia. In London, she met other revolutionaries, socialists and writers, including Eleanor Marx, Engels, Shaw and Oscar Wilde. Sometime later, she met another Russian exile. He was Sidney Riley, later known as the Ace of Spies. He was said to possess 11 passports and a separate wife for each. It was thought that Ethel based the gadfly on Riley, but in fact it was the other way round. Riley's fabricated constructs of his life were inspired by Ethel's fictional creation, according to Riley's biographer. A British secret agent and a model for James Bond... Riley travelled to Russia, where he tried to assassinate Lenin. He himself was executed there in a forest in 1925. The Voyniches eventually ceased their revolutionary activities. Wilfred settled in New York in 1915 as an antiquarian bookseller, Ethel joining him a few years later. None of her later novels ever achieved the same success as The Gadfly, and instead she turned her attention to teaching music and composing, including a work dedicated to Roger Casement. Her translation of Chopin's letters remains in print. 
Wilfred died in 1930, and Ethel and her companion, Anne Nill, lived together for 30 years in the heart of Manhattan, Ethel rereading Shakespeare and Dickens every year. Her life had one final twist. Though The Gadfly had been a bestseller in Russia for decades, she never received any royalties. In 1955, she learned from a Russian diplomat, Peter Boroshov, just how celebrated she was in that country, but presumed long dead. Boroshov, part of the Russian delegation to the UN, had decided to find her grave. Instead, he found her alive and well, and it was like finding Mark Twain alive. For us, she is a second god, he said. After that, Russians, including members of the Bolshoi Ballet visiting New York, used to make pilgrimages to her apartment to pay their respects. Ethel Voynich died in 1960 at the age of 96, mourned as a national hero in Russia. As for the gadfly, it is widely available online and, more than a century later, remains a compelling and thrilling read. sound of our studs on the concrete drew an enormous smile across my face. I'd been preoccupied during the warm-up because my hamstring didn't feel quite right. I worried it would interfere with my big moment, but the collective clatter of studs snapped me out of it. We were a bunch of men about to go to war together, and although I barely knew any of them, it was brilliant. With little more than four weeks training, I was about to receive my first senior cap. This moment had been a long time coming. I was 14 the last time I played rugby. We were in a final and at an age when coaches drew captains out of a hat. It was me. I missed my first few tackles on the wing and was substituted at half-time. What sort of a captain was that? When it came time for rugby pre-season, I told my mother I wasn't going back. I never played rugby again. It wasn't just that match. I was struggling as a teenager and receiving a lot of negative feedback about my body and my physical capabilities. Subconsciously, I believed I just wasn't able for a sport like rugby. I was intimidated by male aggression, and I put other men who displayed their physical prowess on a pedestal way above me. I was afraid that I would be found out as scared and weak. It was years later that rugby came back to me unexpectedly. Living in the UK and working as a lecturer in sports science and medicine, I became the physiotherapist for an amateur rugby club on the weekends. It was more of a social outlet than anything else to begin with. After a few seasons of the team almost being relegated, I stepped into a leadership position to improve our values and behaviours as a group. My contributions seemed to help galvanise the team and we won promotion for the first time in the club's history. A lot of the players I'd mentored even seemed to think I was some kind of rugby legend. I thought to myself, if only they knew. But the longer I observed all the different personalities, body types and skill sets in the group, the more I began to wonder whether the stories I had told myself were actually true. 
And so it came to pass that last autumn found me, age 35, heading down to my old team's training ground. I got out of my car before training and spotted what looked like the coach next to a railing at the pitch. I approached to ask if he had room for any beginners. After a brief conversation about how I hadn't done much else but athletics for the previous 20 years, he and the players welcomed me with open arms. Although nervous, I felt at home almost immediately. Those first few weeks, I focused on taking one step at a time and internally complimenting myself for every small thing I did right. And now here we were, about to play our first match. After the warm-up, we returned to the dressing room to collect our shirts. A mix of testosterone and adrenaline seemed to fill the air as we gathered to our feet in a circle. Some lads getting emotional, other lads interjecting to calm it down. Together, bound up, arm in arm, we were like a rough sea, some of us the tip of the waves and others the troughs in between, all of it inseparable. I held my place in the circle, eyes up, chest out, proud, breathing softly and deeply from my nose all the way down into my boots. I saw every facial expression, heard every word, witnessed every emotion. I hadn't played a minute yet and I was already thinking, this is brilliant, how does anyone ever give this up? Of course, they have and they do and at 35 making my debut, I'll soon be giving it up too. One, two, three, squeeze! One more, lad, says the captain. One, two, three, squeeze! And with the noise of studs once more, we're back out on the field. I focus on getting myself in the right field position and adjusting according to what the lads tell me. The lads are sound. They'll give me a steer as to where I should be. I receive my first pass with ease and make a solid carry into contact. I miss one tackle. I chase a few hopeless causes, which remind me I don't have an endless fuel tank. And then it happens. My big moment. My big chance. A high ball, booted in behind us with their backs charging it down. Everyone watching. I backpedal while fixing my gaze to the ball as it accelerates downwards from the sky. I know I'm good at catching the ball. In fact, for someone who's new to playing, I'm very good at catching the ball. The trouble I had in the past is that I would have told myself I wasn't able to do it under pressure or when it mattered. I'm not stuck in my head now though. I'm relaxed and that ball represents every way I felt less than as a man. One giant ball of emotional pain that I am ready to swallow whole. I've backpedaled just enough to receive the ball. I'm on the back foot and leaning back. But I've got a clear view. I know I'm going to catch the ball. And I do. Boom! Past two men and driven out over the line by a third. With a bit more experience, I'd probably find a way further in field, but not to worry. I'm here to play. I'm ready to play. What should we do for Shachtan Nguelga? As if there's anything. Like, what could you possibly do for a language that's two or three thousand years old in a Shachtan? A mere Shacht law, seven days.
even if Shacht and Nagoyalga does now last for She La Yeg, actually. But I only have She or Shacht no made here, six or seven minutes, a minute for every four centuries of its existence. What I'd love to do is to give you some words, some West Kerry words from Kirkurina. You know, Kirkurina. Kirka meaning the lands or the territory of, and Rina of the clan named Rina or Divna, the relations of Dermot O. Divna, who stole the beautiful Grania from Finn McCool. Although, of course, it was she who lured him away. She didn't want to be stuck with cranky, decrepit old Fionn McCool when such a fine specimen of West Kerry manhood as Dermot was available. Anyway, I want to share some of the words that Dermot and his people would have used eons ago and that are still being used on Lahanish Dangan i Hush, on the Dingle Peninsula today. They're from a book called Knossach Fuckel on Gaum, a gathering of words from the area by Dahio Linhoin. Let's start off with an easy one, in a fighter eiter, which means to know something off by heart. So, hashena fighter eiterigum, Pider means prayer, but Ider means nothing really. Yet together they convey the sense of off by heart. Or how about Alilu Pililu, weeping and crying? She was weeping and crying when she heard. Alilu on its own means goodness gracious, or maybe hallelujah. And Pililu means nothing, except maybe hullabaloo. But put them together and they evoke whining and whinging and moaning. Then there's Eivlogiacht, foolishness, uselessness. Usually said, I'm afraid to say, about a woman by a man. It happened because of her uselessness. Now, don't be expecting to find these words in your dictionary. They're not dictionary words. These words are wild ones never been tamed or pinned down by lexographer. They're the pure drop. Alilu pililu. In a fadderadder. And then there's joroil majdana. Joroil majdana. The appearance of rain in the morning as a result of dew during the night. I'll give you that one again. Joroil majdana. The appearance of rain in the morning as a result of dew during the night. Yeah, that's how we like our words in West Kerry. Specific a little bit quirky and somewhat magical. Joyroil Majdana. Or how about Altuch Manal? refers to a travelling wise woman who is feared because of her sorcery. Altuch Specific, a little bit quirky and somewhat magical. Get your child to put that one in a school essay and just see what happens. Or if he or she has no interest in the language, tell them bui te shella or bui te shmugga, a huge spittle or a gob of snot. They'll like that. But maybe don't get them to put that into their essay. It's the sheer specificity of the words that I love most, like milchard. Milchard is a circular sore spot from walking barefoot on the sole of your foot. A milchard. It'll often have a little black spot at the centre of it. It's not quite a blister and not quite a bruise. It's a milchard. You'll see it particularly on people with balpoga. Any guess what balpoga are? Don't bother. You're, you'll never get it. Balpoga are flat feet. Will you look at his flat feet? 
Balpog is the singular, in case you ever need it. Balpog, flat foot. How about coxaloidum? Coxaloidum. Now we're getting there. This is the good stuff, the 100% proof. Coxaloidum means a love potion, an aphrodisiac. Tom Coxaloidum again. He has what it takes. The John Travolta stare. The John Wayne swagger. The George Clooney smirk. It works for women too. Hug she on Coxaloidum though. She put the come hither on him. There were specific potions and herbal mixes that could be used as a coxaloidum. A well-known one was Driabna Boyle. It was said, Now, you won't understand the first bit, but what about It means into the man's drink, into his tea, no banya, no porter. And he'll be totally besotted by her. But what is this driab nabuila that you put into the drink? Well, according to a dictionary, it means the scum of the dung heap. But as I say, we're far from the realm of dictionaries here. We're well off pieced. Driab nabuila, in the context of a coxaloidum or an aphrodisiac, is a metaphor for a woman's menses. Put a few drops of that into his drink and he'll be smitten. Maybe that's how Gráinne got Diarmuid. He was willing to commit treachery on his beloved leader, Fionn McCool, and elope with her because of the coxaloidum. That's what we need for Irish. Some form of coxaloidum to make us fall in love with her all over again. Mid-morning on the second floor, the sun streaming in, a leisurely sense of time passing pervaded the newsroom. Some reporters would stroll in early, padding over the carpeted floor, derobing as they came, unwrapping themselves out of scarves, taking off their duffel coats and bicycle clips. In that late 1980s newsroom, I found myself in awe of the women in particular who peopled this world. Nula O'Fuelon, Mary Holland, Mary Cummins, Mary Marr, Eileen Battersby, each one more passionate than the other, all serious and committed journalists. I notice now just how prominent women were in that hallowed place, and I remember that many had been recruited by my own uncle, Donald Foley. Up on the fourth floor in the features department, more women of stature led the way. Caroline Walsh, Patsy Murphy, Christina Murphy, my very own fellow Waterfordian Ella Shanahan, and Maeve Binchy, who filed her copy remotely, but was still very much part of it too. I usually occupied a desk at the far end of the open plan newsroom, with my back to the wall and the fire escape door, I had a great view of proceedings. Directly in front of me were the rows of reporters' desks, 
each one equipped with a phone and a typewriter and separated from the other by a low partition wall. These cubbyhole units were invariably untidy, characterised by sheaves of loose paper, stacks of reference books, folders and newspapers and piles of notebooks. The risk that one of these stacks was about to topple was ever present. The central console in this newsroom was where the editors sat. Beyond them, in a far-off corner, was the sports department, and to my left, tucked into a little annex of its own, was the foreign desk, a domain that seemed mysterious and exotic to me, where emerging stories from China or South America or the Middle East were spoken of with barely contained excitement. Nula Ofuelon had a desk a few seats down from me. When she was writing her weekly column, she'd come in a day or two beforehand to make some calls, check some facts and write up her copy. I'd listen to her as she spoke over the phone to someone about the rising cost of living or a government agency that was falling short. In those days, long before her memoir, Are You Somebody? She really was somebody. There were ructions one day when another heroic female columnist, a red-haired champion of women's rights, lit up a cigarette and began to puff away at her desk. Sitting in front was an anti-smoking diva. Soon the sparks, as it were, began to fly when the objector noisily and ostentatiously placed a fan atop the pile of books between them. It was like a red rag announcing the off. The two women argued about the rights of the individual versus the need to comply with company policy. The mid-morning piece was shattered and their raised voices carried across the floor. But to me it was clear, as they debated the dangers of passive smoking, that they were just flexing their intellectual muscles, engaging in a kind of verbal acrobatics. They jousted happily for a while and then somehow, with neither side climbing down, they seemed to mutually agree to give it a rest. Calm was restored, work resumed and soon all that could be heard was the tapping of their typewriters. Still, like a ticking bomb, that quiet newsroom in the morning had an ever-present sense of something waiting to happen. My job as a cub reporter was to monitor the news throughout the day. I'd listen to the hourly bulletins on the radio and phone the guards, the fire stations and all the other emergency services to check if anything was happening. At one o'clock, the energy in the newsroom would ratchet up as the new signature tune boomed out over the radio. Headlines would ricochet off the walls, reporters would start to rush in, editors would begin to demand copy and the floor would come alive. If I had a story to follow up, I'd remain slotted in my seat, phoning, taking notes, building my report, trying to damp down the panic of my diminishing time and the rapidly approaching evening deadline. When the noise of frantic typing and ringing phones filled the air, story after story would start to roll in. They were delivered to the editors who would read them, checking to see if they were correct, balanced and clear, then the stories were sent to the sub-editors and soon pages would start to fill. Taking shape at our fingertips were stories that pulsed and grew as the great maw of the printing machine had to be fed. 
there was a sense in that newsroom that an aspect of history was being shaped. Soon, another day's newspaper would be ready to be put to bed. I met my father on the road the other day. He was behind me on the cycle path in his old jalopy of a jeep. I was cycling back towards Westport when I heard the horn pipping me. I was on the lane through his fields, so I stopped and hitched my bike into the ditch to let him pass. There was a slow whistle as the window descended, and he was there beside me, chewing on a piece of straw. Of course, he wasn't my father. He's been dead nine years this January. But this man was the cut of him, the woollen black hat pulled down, skimming his ears. I shouldn't have beat you, he said. A smile played on his lips. It's OK. It was better than running me down. No, I wouldn't do that. Still, I shouldn't have beat you. You're all right, I said. Where are you from yourself, he said. Nottingham originally... Now I'm over the other side of town. Parents both Irish, home every summer on holiday. You know the story. I do, I do, he said, his eyes straying over to the sheep. My father was a farmer too, I said. Was he now? Well, he was a builder, but as soon as he got the chance, he bought some land and a house beside it on the edge of Nottingham. Had he cattle? He managed to buy 30 acres, I said, and then he rented nearly a hundred, and so he had a big herd of Charolais. That's mighty. It was, I said. I think it was like a piece of home for him over there. He had donkeys and miniature horses. He bought carriages for them at farm sales. Then he'd drive the grandchildren around whenever he got the chance. Mighty, he sounds mighty. He shifted around in his seat, and I saw him wince as he moved his hip. Dad was the same sometimes. He often walked like a magpie carrying an apple in his beak. Well, I best get going, I said. The rain's coming. It surely is. Good luck. With an abrupt nod of his head, he saluted me and drove off down the lane. I pushed down hard on the pedals, but I felt the grief rising in my chest. It was like for a few minutes, my father was there beside me. I ache to be back in his farmhouse kitchen in Trowell, warming my bottom against the red arger, making tea for himself and Larry Quinn once they've had a sip of puchine to put some warmth back into themselves after another winter Saturday chasing cattle that had broken out into the neighbouring fields. Then they do the feeding and foddering of the menagerie of horses and donkeys and the flock of sheep he minded for Father Carney, whose Bulwell Parish had no pasture. I'd give anything to stand again looking out of his back window at his turkeys, the one-eyed goose, the ducks and the hens. 
I longed to hear Quentin the Mule's melancholic braying at dusk, calling for a mate, more soulful than any pining lover. Quentin was a handsome Poitou mule, another bargain from a farm sale, whose pedigree turned out to be flawed, but Dad kept him anyway. Nearing Caraholy on my bike, I can see Crowpatrick standing tall over Clue Bay. I'm reminded of Dad wearing the ceremonial mitre and green and gold vestments on permanent loan to him from Bishop McGuinness. He wore the mitre low on his high forehead as he strode out with his staff, leading the Nottingham Parade every 17th of March. He was one of the founders of the Nottingham Irish Club in the 1950s and he was never prouder than when he was asked to be St Patrick in the annual parade. Prouder even than of his role in the purchase of the new premises for the club on Wilford Street in the 1970s where he did most of the building work to create the dance hall with the sprung floor, the restaurant and stable bar. I was only 14 or 15 and I was his brick hodder that long, hot summer. It was quite a spectacle when he led the parade through the centre of Nottingham. All the traffic stopped, the crowds waving little Irish flags, and all of them looking at him. He became an annual feature in the Evening Post. Meanwhile, I led the procession of floats in his old Land Rover, towing the big model Irish cottage that himself and John Dermody had built and thatched. Dad kept the saints' robes on long after the parade because in the pubs everyone was dying to buy St Patrick a Guinness. I feel such pride now for that shy lad who left Charlestown in 1949 with a fiver and two pairs of socks in his pocket. Yet for years I was mortified by his antics, saintly and not so saintly. After he died, I found his St. Patrick regalia, the alb, chasuble and mitre still hanging in the wardrobe and not a snake to be seen anywhere. On this morning's programme, we heard The Night You Two Were Born by Michael McNamara, Ethel Voynich by Deirdre McQuillan, Rugby, Going to War With Myself by Peter Francis. From the recent archive, Wild Words from the Dingle Peninsula by Mancon McGann. Then in the newsroom by Catherine Foley. And finally, My Father, St. Patrick by Kate Carty. This morning's music was Stories for Boys by U2. Romance from the Gadfly by Shostakovich, played by Nicola Benedetti with the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Krail Karabitz. After that, we heard O'Neill's March, played by The Chieftains. Then The Frenzy Polka by Cormac Begley. And the final piece of music this morning was Clocks by Randy Newman from the film The Paper. And you can hear Mancon McGann on Lyric FM throughout Shock the Nagailge with the short series Aisht Le Mancon McGann, illustrating words as from music, song and sound. And there's another chance to hear his series The Almanac of Ireland this evening at 7.30 here on RTE Radio 1. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You can listen back to this morning's programme or share it with friends on the RTE Radio player or the programme website. 
rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.